So starting off equal footing of, hey, I know you actually work for the company or, hey, I know that you actually are the candidate you claim to be is a fundamental way to build trust. It's foundational. In fact, when I started at Microsoft 20 years ago now, I went to the security office and I had to show them my ID and the security person looked at it and they gave me a temporary password and a key card to access the buildings. And if I got locked out, I had to go back to the security office. Somebody was doing that physically. And that's just not a scalable process. It's certainly not realistic in today's world of talent coming from all over the world, in many cases, maybe not even showing up. And so I feel like this question of identity and bringing transparency there is critical in building trust with colleagues and remote workers. This is the Rebel HR Podcast, the podcast where we talk to HR innovators about all things people leadership. If you're looking for places to find about new ways to think about the world of work, this is the podcast for you. Please subscribe from your favorite podcast listening platform today and leave us a review. Rebel on, HR Rebels. Welcome back, Rebel HR listeners. Very excited for the conversation today. We're going to be talking about something a little bit different. We're going to be talking all about remote work. With remote work on the rise, the trend of fully remote interview processes are also becoming the norm, as well as building trust remotely. Aaron Painter is at the forefront of addressing this very issue, having seen employee fraud cases firsthand. A former VP and general manager at Microsoft, Aaron is now CEO of Nametag, a leader in digital ID verification. There is a lot on the horizon with this issue, uh, and I'm really excited to start to dig into this with you, Aaron. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks. I'm a regular listener and super excited to be on the conversation with you today. Thank you. And with us, we also have Molly Burdess. Molly, welcome back. All right, Aaron. So uh, Molly and I were chatting before we hit record. This is going to be, I think, one of one of the new topics that we've talked about. And I'm really excited to, to really kind of dig into this issue. Before we go there, though, I'd like to understand a little bit about your background and what got you into kind of the, the digital uh, world of work with Nametag. Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, like many of us, I think in, in so many of our professions, we have different backgrounds that come to bring us to where we are today. And so much of mine was shaped uh, working around the world. Uh, I was at Microsoft for about 14 years, and most of those 14 years were outside the U.S. Um, I had this pleasure to lead international expansion for Microsoft. So when we uh, opened up an office in a new country, where, all around the world, uh, and then I spent several years living on the ground, um, four years in France, uh, two years in Brazil, uh, five and a half years in China, uh, two of those in Hong Kong, three and a half in Beijing. And uh, then later on, several years in the UK. And so, so much of my career was being someone who often didn't look or sound like others at the table, having to find a way to fit in, having to find a way to build trust with my colleagues, uh, and most importantly, my team members that I was managing. And throughout all of it, I would say one of the most fundamental relationships I had every place I was, was with my HR business partner. And I, I was fortunate at Microsoft to work with a set of colleagues who truly valued that profession and wanted to really kind of be the best they could be. And I saw firsthand how strong an HR partner can be as a true partner to the business uh, when you have kind of that desire on both sides to make that relationship work. Uh, so much so that uh, when I left Microsoft uh, after working in China, I wrote a book on it um, focused on a customer and employee loyalty with the premise that when employees feel listened to and trusted and respected, they carry that sense of engagement or loyalty how they interact with customers. And you get a virtuous cycle on the business side where employees feel listened to. They're then listening to customers for feedback and a business can create loyalty with both and be successful overall. 
Uh, so I have a ton of respect for this discipline and certainly for where many of your listeners spend their day jobs. Appreciate that. We will take that, uh, that, that undeserved credit. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's really interesting, you know, the, the context of being different um, and, and being in a place where, you know, people notice, notice the difference. I think many of us um, don't have that experience. And so it, as, as that was shaping you and, you know, you were, you were kind of learning about that, what, what did that teach you about, about building trust with, with people who are maybe different than you or, or, or people who just don't know you? Yeah, a lot of it started to me with this concept of listening. And we talk a lot more about this now. It's really become a, a more trendy topic since my book in 2017. But I think of this fundamental principle of uh, when you're listening with curiosity to understand, uh, people feel respected by that. And you know, I ended up doing even a, kind of a TED talk about this. But uh, I think it's probably most relevant when I think of some of the Asian cultures where I worked. Uh, Hong Kong, I went in. It was sort of a business turnaround for us. It wasn't a performing business um, and yet we had a lot of really strong, incredibly intelligent uh, employees who sort of knew what things could be or that they could be a little bit different or how to respond differently in the market, but their voices weren't being heard. And so by breaking a little bit of cultural norms and saying, hey, I'm going to sit down one on one and hear from you and not tell you how things are going to be and what my mandate or doctrine is going to be from some headquarters, but to try and listen with this curiosity of what, what's in your mind, what can we do differently, what can we do that would make things perform better locally, uh, not only did I get great ideas that helped shape the basis of a plan, but I was able to create a relationship with those colleagues where they felt like um, their voices matter and their opinions matter. And that to me, that sense of mutual respect was the foundation of being able to build trust and then ultimately to build a really successful business. That worked, I would say, and it worked in many phases of my career and in many places. And then even as I went outside direct management of my, my team members inside, to how I carried engagements with customers, but it almost always was in person. In fact, most of the cultures where I lived, anything France, Brazil, uh, certainly across China, there was so much uh, in-person focus. It was long lunches uh, with, with colleagues and with customers and dinners, and uh, everyone was in the office all the time, and they were in-person relationships. And so I knew how to do that. And fortunately, it was a skill. I often think management is an art. You know, there, there are tools that we bring to it. It's not a science. And so you're never sort of perfect. You're always striving to get better and better. But I, I could do it in person. I knew how to connect with people physically, even if I didn't necessarily have native language skills or they didn't either. But it was, I later learned, quite different when you try and think about doing that in a virtual context, particularly when maybe you didn't have that basis of trust that you earned in person. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you're speaking to the heart of me and I'm, you, you know, I, I'm an individual that I have three people on my team that I've never actually met in person. Um, and I've, you know, mostly because of COVID, but we've, we've stumbled through it. Um, some of those individuals are in China and I, you can't even get in. Right. So like in person is completely impossible right now. Um, and it's been, it's been a challenge. It probably took significantly longer to build a trusting relationship with those individuals than, um, than it would have if I was actually in person and we could see each other's nonverbals and, and kind of listen to understand and, you know, do some of those, those best practices you mentioned. So, so as you, as you think about that and you think about, you know, some of the work that you've done with, with name tag and, and, and with your experience prior, um, what are some of the tactics or, or things that you have found work when you're in this, this new kind of 
territory that they were marching through. Yeah, there's a lot that we experiment with at NameTag. We were, we were founded as a virtual company at the start of the pandemic, and we had to build our own sense of culture. And I was a little bit nervous at first. I, I had office space. We're all set in Seattle, and it was going to be great. We're going to build a team in person. And quickly, COVID made that not possible. I said, all right, let's try and find just different ways to do this. And I realized quickly that a lot of the talent that was going to be in our space were going to be in a lot of different places. It was a competitive talent environment. And I said, I'd rather find people who are amazing at what they do and can come add to our culture and build this company that we, we have such great aspirations for. And they weren't going to be in Seattle. They were going to be somewhere in the US. Let's at least limit it to that. And so we had a lot of experimentation on how we communicate, how we come together, the rhythms, the practices as a team, um, you know, how we use virtual tools that I'd say have really helped us. Uh, some fun things we could talk about and we're getting better at every day. But to me, it really goes back to the problems in a way we were trying to solve. And I realized at the start of the pandemic very personally that it was simply too hard to trust the identity of someone online or on the phone. I mean, it's sort of simple. Like if you today want to know who someone is, you you have you come into the bank branch and they show you an ID or you're walking into a bar or going to buy an age-restricted product or you're hiring someone in the U.S. and you go through an I-9 verification process. The standard in all of those is actually the same. Show me this physical document type that someone of the government has given you. Let me match this your face, match this document. If I trust the document and I trust you match that face, then your identity is confirmed. But during COVID, you realize very quickly, hey, if you call and you say, hey, I'm locked out of my bank account. Uh, I lost my phone. My authenticator app didn't work. What a million things in my life changed. They default to these silly knowledge-based questions that are either really easy, right? What's your favorite color? Or really hard, what street did you live in in whatever year? And it creates frustration on behalf of those poor customer service reps and the millions of people who work in that profession. It creates frustration on behalf of users who can't answer it or at the very least walk away saying, gosh, that's how my account is protected. Like that's the level of security we're relying on. And so I realized there was this just this challenge in how companies and particularly identify their customers. But I very quickly learned as we started engaging with companies that they had a concern there, but they also had a huge concern about how to extend that to employees and how to verify who employees are, particularly in a remote world of work. Is this where you ask for my mother's maiden name? (laughs) the way to know it's you (laughs) funny enough i mean one of the odd things is it sort of starts at the hiring process right where recruiters or hr professionals are contacting candidates through social networks or job platforms and those candidates increasingly don't know if the person contacting them is who they claim to be and then the same challenge extends sort of the other way you don't necessarily know if the candidate you're, you're reaching out to is a verified person so to speak You know, we rely all of us enormously on things like LinkedIn. I don't know about you, but the number of inbound things I get from people on LinkedIn, I don't even know if they're a real person. I don't know if there's someone pretending to be. I was at an event last week and the event organizers kindly grabbed everyone's LinkedIn bios and links and put them next to the person's name. They took someone who was actually pretending to be me. They linked to someone, a fake Aaron Painter (laughs) out there. Who knows? Same job. They used my photo. And at first, you know, sadly, that person had no friends or no connections. But that was the link because someone assumed that was me. They searched my name on LinkedIn and they came back with a fraudulent profile. And Mm. so we're seeing this enormous um, sense of uh, challenge in these platforms that we come to rely on and respect, whether it's LinkedIn or Indeed or one of the many, many job platforms out there where you don't actually know if the profile, whether they're the recruiter or the candidate, is actually a verified person. And impersonation happens, uh, fraud happens. 
And we're realizing this matters at the interview stage. It especially matters at the offer stage. And then there's this whole other strange chapter that we started to encounter. We learned firsthand from companies we're working with where actually the employee maybe is validated. You figure it out. You hire them. You've got three to five days. You go through the I-9 verification process. We've heard stories that doesn't even work. We've heard stories of people that are hired on their first day. They actually go and steal a bunch of IP from the company and disappear before they even completed their I-9 process. But then in the best case, maybe they hire and everything's good. And that well-intentioned employee is working away. But then someone calls the IT help desk and set, whether it's actually your employee or not, you don't know that IT help desk is stuck being the identity detective. And the person on the other end of the phone says, well, I'm locked out of my account. Can you reset my login credentials? And now suddenly it's an IT problem. And IT is trying to verify, is this person actually our employee before we reset their credentials and let them back in? It's all the same problem. It's just simply too hard to trust the identity of someone that you meet only over the phone or online or through those channels. You know, I think this is a really powerful topic because it's it's one of those things that I think it, it's it's a it's a logical consequence of what we just went through, which is trying <laughs> trying to figure out remote work in like a, a crisis environment. Um, without necessarily having the infrastructure and tools to make sure that you've got, you know, the security uh, protocols you need. And, you know, I, I can think, you know, I, I won't go into extreme details, but I can think about even when we had those tools in place and we were doing in-person work, fraudulent activity, uh, when we were hiring people that said they were different than who they were. And we'd catch it on a you know, uh, uh, when we were onboarding them and have to, you know, adjust <laughs> there or take appropriate or or you you figure it out when you Google somebody's name that that they're not, you know, there's more to the story, things like that. Um, so so walk me through the tool a little bit more. Um, it how do you how do you do this when you when you know it's 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 not easy even when you're in person. How do you how do you validate some of this uh, virtually? Yeah, we built something that is incredibly modern and slick to use. Uh, and it sort of has two functional areas where it works. And, and they feel different, but they're actually remarkably related. Um, if you think about when you log into a website, let's pretend even at the moment, given the what's in the news, let's pretend it's Twitter, right? And you have all your communications and you're chatting away and you're saying whatever you want. And then you want to be someone else. Well, you just create a new email address on Gmail and suddenly that Gmail address is linked to whatever Twitter handle you are. And that's that's sort of your new persona or profile. Um, even Twitter in Elon's first few days has realized that doesn't work, that you need sort of verified profiles. You need to know actually who is the owner behind an account. Still operate with a pseudonym, maybe still be anonymous. Let the platform decide. But the platform, I would argue, has a responsibility to know who its users are. Yeah. And so we built something that's a really slick way to essentially go through what you might think of like a KYC process if you're opening a bank account, of checking someone's identity remotely when they open the account. And then we've created a really slick way for someone to essentially log in again, only using their face instead of a password, but that we can then reconfirm it back to the government ID they share to make sure that they are the same person accessing a profile. So this allows things like verified profiles to happen on job search platforms, on social media platforms, and takes away the sense of anonymity so that we can all operate with a bit more confidence and trust in who we're interacting with on these platforms. That's I'm chuckling. I'm, I'm chuckling because, um, so this is what the dating apps do. <laughs> they, uh, they, they, 
just to make sure you're not, you know, full of it. They match, they make you take a picture to match the picture that you're saying you are to make sure that they, uh, uh, that, you know, that you're legit. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's, idea. it's funny you mentioned dating because we talk about that one a lot. They're starting and they really, that's another example where knowing who the person is really matters, right? right. You're trying to build trust with someone. You're trying to build a relationship. You're probably going to meet up in person. And yet they don't actually still know. They might match that your photo matches the profile photo that's there. But by the way, you still don't really know who you are as a person. And I would yeah. argue that those platforms have the same responsibility to actually check your ID and know who you are to say, all right, that face also matches to this legal name that someone in the government attested to. And then, by the way, yes, let's make sure your profile photos match. I think there's a step change coming in the internet where we need authenticity in many of these transactions that we've come to rely on. There's a room for anonymity. There's room for pseudonyms. But there is also a ton of inappropriate things that happen because we can't validate who the user is beyond today, mostly their device. We think of a user as an email address or a phone number or linking it to a device for like an authenticator app or sending them an SMS verification. We don't actually have a way to verify the person instead of the device. So we built one. The other neat thing, um, the other flavor of it is sort of in these support scenarios or in one-time scenarios. We've created this really easy, like no implementation required, uh, a, a, you know, sort of a web page that someone in HR or someone in the IT department or someone in customer support can go to to type in a phone number and send you as a person a request and ask you to ver verify your government issued ID and that your photo matches it and that you are that person. And then it gives you an instant sense of uh, confirmation and trust that you know who you're speaking to. Kind of a one-time flavor, but we can also enable every time someone kind of logs in or signs into something. So those use cases of, uh, hey, I'm the employee who's locked out, can you reset my credentials? Instead of a guessing game or feeling social pressure on the phone to just do it as the IT person, that IT person could then have a tool to say, hey, I just need to make sure it's actually you and that you your ID has been checked and that your name matches our employee on file, let's say before we reset that password or maybe before we uh, issue an offer letter. That's really interesting. Um, is it limited to the U.S. or is it? Can it just be any government issued ID? Almost ten thousand document types. Uh, it was interesting. I thought we could focus on the U.S. first, but then we had a bunch of companies that said, "Hey, globally, I have employees all over around the world, or I have customers that call and get locked out from all over the world." And so we really doubled down and about a year ago to build uh, international functionality. Uh, so it uh, works wherever the person might happen to be located. Works on Android and iOS, and we've done it with some really slick technology that. Um, doesn't require the, the sort of candidate or the employee or the uh, customer in that case to have to download a separate application. Uh, something just pops up on their phone. It's this really neat new technology from Apple and Android. It's called an app clip. Um, it's like a mini app that just feels like it appears on your phone without you having to go to the app store. So we get all these rich security functions of like an application native on the phone, and we can take advantage of all the advanced security things on the phone. But with the user experience, that's easy. Uh, it turns out this is just absolutely breakthrough. Um, no, no provider on the market is doing anything like this today. Yeah, very, very cool. And you know, it's it's interesting because one of the things that popped into my head when you were describing this is, you know, it you are creating a little bit of friction in the you know in the candidate experience, for instance, right? So anything you can do to kind of reduce that, um, you know, and make that user experience really, really positive is is important. But I think you know the international question for me. I mean, I'm just you know, 
the bigger issue that we run into, at least in my organization, is the fact that we, we hire internationally. And a lot of times we're hiring people in an area where we don't even have an office. You know, we're hiring them through a, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a, a third party organization or something like that. And we, <laughs> yeah, th there is a lot of risk when, when you're doing things like that. Um, but there's also a lot of, you know, competitive advantage if you can hire people anywhere uh, in the world uh, just because because they have the right skill set, right? So they could be a really powerful enabler for certain organizations too. Yeah, I, I also feel really passionate about our core topic, which is how do you build trust with people? And in this case, employees. And it, it, that trust goes two ways, just like respect has to go two ways if you're going to build a trusting relationship. And so starting off on equal footing of, hey, I know you actually work for the company, or hey, I know that you actually are the candidate you claim to be, is a fundamental way to build trust. It's foundational, in fact. If you don't know who someone is, you know, again, in person, you recognize their face. When I started at Microsoft 20 years ago now, I went to the security office and I had to show them my ID and the security person looked at it and they gave me a temporary password and a, you know, a key card to access the buildings. And if I got locked out, I had to go back to the security office. Somebody was doing that look physically. And that's just not a scalable process. It's certainly not realistic in today's world of talent coming from all over the world and many cases, maybe not even showing up. And so I, I feel like this, this question of identity and, and bringing transparency there is critical in building trust with, with colleagues and remote workers. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, um, it, it, it kind of communicates that you're legit, right? <laughs> like, like this is a real company. <laughs> um, and, and they, they take these things seriously, including things like employee privacy, right? Um, which is obviously an extremely hot topic. Have you run into any issues with the kind of the, you know, the, the whole concern around biometrics and like storing, you know, storing that type of information as you're validating uh, um, uh, potential employee or, or, or customer uh, identification? Yeah, we've, we've been very progressive in our approach to privacy. Um, in fact, in some ways I would argue we are role models in things like GDPR and CCPA and even the, you know, the Illinois biometrics area and, and other states that are following suit. Um, partly it's because we are heavily consent-based. And so through each step of the process, a, a user has clear consent in what they're doing. Um, they have the ability to revoke what they've shared. And we do things, a feature we call privacy masking today, where my classic example of this is when you go to a bar, you know, gosh, that bartender or the person with the door, the bouncer is saying, show me your ID. And in the US, they're only trying to solve the question of are you over 21 and you're able to enter this bar? Does the person really need to know your home address? <laughs> no, it's a little bit creepy. Like it's, it's sort of oversharing, right? Modern language. And so we've created a way where let's say in that scenario, they can just say, we're looking to know that you're over 21. You might scan your ID, but you're only going to authorize sharing of the principle of not even your birth date, but simply that you're of over 18 or over 21 or whatever the scope as we call it is. And so we've, we've put users directly in control. They are controllers of their own data and it's a purely opt-in. The user has to specifically opt-in to share with a company, with an employer, with uh, anyone they're engaging with. Um, and then we've been really thoughtful about how the data is stored and where it's used and scenarios around that. Um, so we're really proud of our approach around privacy. In fact, in many ways, we said, are we, have we built a privacy platform or is it an identity platform or is it a security platform? I don't know. All of those words apply, um, but part of it's because we've been so thoughtful in how we've uh, architected things, including, by the way, limiting what a company needs to store. And so a company has the option of not even needing to store the information they capture, simply knowing that it's been validated. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that's the, um, yeah, just the mention of the word the GDPR, it just sends shivers down my spine. <laughs> As anybody that's operating in the EU knows, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, and then all the other ones that have kind of followed suit. Um, so, so I'm going to circle back to kind of the, 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 the initial premise that we're talking about, which is, which is trust. It, has there have you had any of the reactions where people feel like oh you're asking me to do this because you don't trust me and that it you know like does that point of conflict happen or or is is that the exception that today there's not an option and so what our perspective is is high value scenarios trust matters mm-hmm. and in a way it's also access to your own things so let's say you're on a job platform today or let's say you're seeing an HR platform. And, uh, you know, where you log in for your payroll and access to other things, you know, you might put in your work email and then maybe your employer changes and you need to go back and access your payroll data. But you don't want just anyone accessing all the information that maybe was on that platform. Maybe it had performance reviews or other things. And so actually knowing who the person is that's accessing something can be a way to offer sort of a a VIP level of support or uh, a more secure way to access your own data. And so a lot of the companies we work with roll things out like this in the spirit of, hey, we're increasing security. And we're doing this to protect you as opposed to um, we're trying to be invasive or, or, or put in friction for you. We're doing this as an enhanced level of security. Today, the best level of enhanced security online is sort of things like multi-factor authentication or MFA or you know 2FA, send you a text message, set up an authenticator app. Again, though, that only works until someone gets locked out, which happens a lot. And so companies are slowing down They're more resistant to roll out things like MFA on the technology side because they have a huge surge in customer support tickets. And that's been another sort of workforce that I've had a lot of exposure to. And as you're coming earlier, I'm shocked that we really aren't providing those professionals with the right tools, right? These are people that go to work every day in theory because they like helping others. And instead of being able to say, how can I help you? They start every call essentially with an interrogation. Uh, prove to me you're the person I'm speaking with. So anything we can do from a tooling perspective to make that a better experience, not only is better for the person who's calling or chatting online, whatever the channel is, but it's also better for the, the millions of people who work in customer support every day, be able to get back to their core function of actually let me help and try and calm you or, or relieve some barrier that led to the frustration of you calling in the first place. So that's really where we focus on this. How can we bring greater security and greater convenience not really having to sacrifice either. Yeah, and just don't ask me, you know, to, to click the squares with the with the cars or the motorcycles and have like bit like barely one tire in one of those tiles. It's so stressful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and you know what? That was great technology 20 years ago when it came out. And you're right. <laughs> but is it that old? Has it been 20 yeah. years? Oh man. It's actually a really great how I built this with Guy Raz podcast, uh, with the recapture uh, recapture founder. Uh, kind of on this, who went on to build Duolingo and kind of how they were drawing what they set out to do and why. Uh, super interesting. Listen, I, when, when someone exhausts all the Rebel HR podcasts, um, that's one I would recommend. But it's uh, a great kind of founding story and also an example of kind of how it's outlived its usefulness. Because um, knowing is someone a bot, by the way, turns out is still difficult uh, on most platforms, but it matters more now of who are you and not just are you a person. But by the way, which person are you? Um, and in particularly when we think about hiring and the people that are part of our companies, what matters is who they are. We've had this interesting thing with, um, you know, some one company we were working with actually shared a story where they hired someone they thought that person went along and kind of outsourced their work 
to another colleague. Um, obviously, the one they thought they hired was getting the, the payroll and registered in the system. And the person they, they outsourced to was doing better work than they thought the person they hired. And so the company's like, we're really torn. We realized this wasn't correct. But the outsourced <laughs> person was better than the person we hired. However, the outsourced person didn't have the certifications that we were mm. promising our customers that our employee had. So we were being dishonest to our customers. So of course, we had to end it. But this is sort of this conundrum. Like there are a lot of reasons why you really need to know not only who did you hire, but are they the person accessing your network and purporting to be your employee? And companies, especially with high turnover in today's digital world of, um, gosh, there's a lot of change going on in the, in the current economic environment. Everyone's out looking for jobs and, and vice versa. Hiring continues at different paces. And there's an even growing amount of fraud. There's an even growing amount of how can I kind of game the system? And I think that's sort of the spirit of this, uh, of this podcast and the conversations you have is we need kind of a rebellious approach. I think we need something that's a little bit disruptive. And I think the industry today is missing this concept of authenticity um, and being able to know who you're engaging with uh, as a critical step in, in building any kind of employee-employer relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we've all heard that story of the person that like gets the job and then hires a contractor on you know Upwork or Fiverr or something like that. And then they're just like, um, and the contractor's better. That's, that's, that's funny. <laughs> um, it, it is, it, it is interesting though, to think that, you know, that there's just so much more of an opportunity for this to happen than there was, you know, a few years back. Um, and, you know, and I think it's one of those challenges where, you know, we don't want to be intrusive, you know, the employee privacy matters and, you know, and, and trusting employees, you know, matters, but, but trusting p- employees blindly, um, or not having some sort of a check and balance in place is also extremely risky. And so, uh, you know, what I'm hearing is this is maybe a way to, to thread the needle a little bit and, and try to find the right balance there. Yeah. I think there's just an opportunity in particular when you're starting a relationship, you know, at that moment of recruiting, at that moment of offer, you know, issuing an offer letter, um, that's early in the relationship and that's, Hey, let's get to know each other. Just like interview questions are or background checks or other things that are standard that are sort of just trust check marks that make you feel good about the colleagues you're working with, knowing they went through a similar process. And then it's the same thing. I think when there's just this high risk moment of, Hey, you're a virtual employee. We're trying to protect your account, your reputation, your credentials. If some random person calls the help desk and pretends to be you, we don't want to let them in and jeopardize your relationship and reset your email password and let them pretend to be you and email the whole company. Like That's not protecting um, the, and giving sort of the respect to the employees that you have. And so it's at the right moments. Uh, I feel enormously that employees need to, need to feel empowered and that trust is so critical in that. Uh, but I think, again, connecting or building trust early in those relationships, especially when employees are remote, it's difficult. And I think we just need better tools to be able to offer that check mark and, and sense of verified competence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has just been a fascinating conversation and, and, uh, you know, it's something that I think everybody in HR has probably felt this if they've had any sort of remote employees or, or even are, are going through, you know, in-person uh, fraud situation. Um, that being said, we are going to shift gears. We're going to go into the rebel HR flash round. So, uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Question number one, where does HR need to rebel? I think HR needs to know its candidates. I think we trust platforms and I think we've got a whole bunch of creative ways to source new candidates. And I think there's a greater need to know truly who you're sourcing and who the candidate is that you're interviewing with virtually or in person. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's easier said than done. 
even when we're not talking about just pure identity, it's, uh, you know, who a person is, is, is hard to know sometimes. That's right. It's, interview processes, I would argue, are hard enough. And if, if the person isn't being honest on who they are, let alone their background, gosh, that's not a very solid place to start building a relationship. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Question number two, who should we be listening to? IT. I think there is a stronger relationship that's necessary between IT and HR than some people might assume. I mean, so much, obviously, of the HR profession, even increasingly, is HR ops, right? And how much we rely on tools for candidate management and uh, HR platforms and so many other important things. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, IT often absorbs challenges, particularly around IT help desk, IT support, um, and they can be a great partner. Uh, sometimes that's also the security organization. But I think IT is, should be a partner from early on. I, the experience many candidates or employees have with the company is often a digital one. And so using smart digital tools, I think, can make that HR employee experience an even better one. Absolutely. I am a huge advocate for that. I actually started my career in IT. Um, but first of all, IT can just help you because there's a lot of things that you can digitize and systemize and automate with IT. Um, but uh, they're, they're, they're also, you know what I call like brothers in arms, you know, we're, we're, we're always the ones that get called when things go wrong. Um, so, you know, band together, find your, find your tribe. IT is good people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We got started early on. Actually, we had a bunch of uh, HR professionals contact us and say, Hey, I've got to deal with this COVID stuff. I need to know who's vaccinated, et cetera. And they had HR teams that had spent gone full time validating people's COVID cards. And they said, Hey, can you just that actually they went to someone in IT and someone in IT came to us and said, can you automate this for my HR team? And it turned out to be just kind of an early way we could help during the pandemic of checking someone's ID and COVID card and giving HR just to report, but just automating an HR process that was becoming time consuming. Right. And it's when that relationship is strong, I think there's so much help that can go both ways. Absolutely. One of my favorite people is the person that does on my workflows. <laughs> <laughs> And they usually make it better than what I even had anyway. So yeah, I'm with you on that one. All right, final question here. How can our listeners connect with you and learn more about NameTag? Well, I wouldn't be a fan of the HR discipline if I wasn't active on LinkedIn. And <laughs> I think that's really the best platform. We try and uh, think a lot about this space and produce content that might be interesting to folks. Um, so we'd love your feedback for to connect with me directly. Uh, so we've got a really cool website at getnametech.com. Um, but LinkedIn's uh, kind of my primary platform. And I think the same for our company. Absolutely. We'll have that information in the show notes. So open up your podcast player, check it out. We'll also have a link to, to name tag if you want to check out the system. And if it's uh, interesting to you, uh, check it out. Aaron, really appreciate the time here. I know you're super busy and, and really uh, value uh, you spending some time with us today. So thank you. It was super fun, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Take care. All right. That does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guests, Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.